Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Tempered Leadership. I'm your host, Eric Rieger, and today I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by Jeff Hillemeyer. And if you're not familiar with Jeff, he's got an amazing story to tell. He is the founder or co-founder of five different organizations, the author of two books, and an all-around great guy. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Eric. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. And uh, so your, your current organization, Dragon Army, which you, uh, you have the, uh, the, the, the logo behind you or the poster board of the logo behind you. Compliments, um, compliments of my eight-year-old. Perfect. Perfect. Well, it saves on, uh, it saves on production costs. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, let's t tell everybody a little bit about uh, Dragon Army, uh, what it does, uh, how you got started in that, and then we'll just see where this takes us on our journey today. Great. Um, yeah. So Dragon Army is uh, my, the third for-profit I have uh, founded or co-founded. Um, and it is, uh, we describe it as a purpose-driven digital en engagement agency. So I'll break that down. Purpose-driven. So Dragon Army, our purpose is to inspire happiness. So even though most of what we do is building websites, building mobile applications, helping clients with their branding initiatives or content, we always remind ourselves that we are an organization that is trying to inspire happiness in each other, in our partners, in the end recipients of the things that we build. So again, purpose-driven, we started uh, in 2013 and we're based in Atlanta. We get to work with a lot of great companies, um, Coca-Cola, Delta, Home Depot, uh, a lot of amazing brands, mostly here in Atlanta. That's, that's amazing. And so right, right off the top, you know, when you talk about purpose-driven, the first thing that comes to mind is culture. So, you know, one of the things I was uh, reading Patty McCord's book uh, recently about Netflix, and they talk, you know, she talks about the, the three things that attract, you know, the, the, the top people that are going to be contributors to your organization. And when you give them a culture, I've got to figure, you know, the fact that you have a well-defined purpose has helped you attract talent and it's, you know, we, we talked right before the show started, you know, you're having a low key Monday. That's, that's a good thing, you know, and that's the culture's really got to be contributing to that, I would think. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting as I've evolved as an entrepreneur, I started my first company in college actually, and have been an entrepreneur ever since. Um, I didn't learn about purpose and really creating true values until Dragon Army. Um, we always worked on culture and tried to have a place that was great to go to and everybody was friendly and we didn't put up with, you know, the politics internally and all that stuff. It wasn't until Dragon Army that I was able to bring together a true purpose that we all believed in, as well as clearly defined values. And it has been incredibly um, rewarding to grow this company with those things. And yes, it, you know, when everyone's sort of on the same page and rowing in the same direction and believes in what you're doing, it does at times allow for some low key Monday mornings. Well, and, and you talked about, you mentioned right at the opener about some of the clients that you have, uh, you know, like American Cancer Society, Chick-fil-A, Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, um, you know, Home Depot, I, that, those are some big names. And I have to figure, you know, when you're dealing with, with some of the big organizations, being able to, to, you know, set yourself apart because you have this purpose, uh, how has that helped with attracting clients of this magnitude? Yeah, you know, I, th I think clients um, appreciate it, but I will say we, we talk at Dragon Army mostly about the, our purpose, helping us keep and retain our clients much more than win them. 
You know, I think about like a Patagonia, right? Patagonia has uh, a great purpose and is a, is a company that's trying to make the world a better place. But if they made a crappy product, none of us would probably know who they are, right? And so we have yep, to start exactly. with, you know, Coca-Cola wants to work with the best of the best and they want someone who can build this mobile application, right? Once we're in, and we certainly talk about our purpose when we're first getting introduced, but it's really after we start working with them that our heart really can come out and we can build trust with them so that we can be the partner they want, not just for, you know, this project, but for, you know, years to come, right? So we, we've experimented with heavying up on our purpose in the beginning. And, and again, while I think it resonates well, they still want to know, can you do the job? So I think we get in the door because we're really good at what we do, but we keep our clients because we have a true purpose. That's, that's excellent. And you mentioned that, you know, Dragon Army was the first company, the third of, of uh, your four profits where you really kind of figured that out. Um, you know, what were some of the, the bumps and bruises from the previous two organizations that either thumped you over the head to get you here or, you know, were kind of those epiphany moments where, you know, we really have to change what we're doing or, or something that triggered you to get on this path? What, you know, take us through that journey. Yeah. Um... A couple of different things come to mind. My first company, we were about five years in. And again, I, I probably started it when I was 21 or 22 in my senior year of college. And it took us about five years to realize that we didn't, we didn't have anything that was bringing us together. We didn't have a singular focus. And while I didn't use the word purpose at that time, I knew we were missing something. And it came out in the fact that, you know, we were uh, pitching a lot of business and not winning it. We had conflict within the team. And so it was really halfway through that company. It was 10 years of, of building it before I sold it. About year five or six, we landed on a, a focus, which was around user experience. But the important thing was from that point forward, it, it rallied us. And so I learned there needs to be something grounding you that really helps. With the second company, um, it was... Um, the, the not having defined values allowed for behavior that I hadn't experienced before. And in rooting out that behavior and trying to figure out why this was allowed and why it was seeping in, we were, you know, 300 plus people. It's hard to sort of corral that if you don't have defined values. It's easier when, you know, you're 50 people, 75, which was my first company. So after those two businesses, I realized we needed something that we could focus on with Dragon Army so that so the purpose, but we also needed value. So as we grew, everybody knew, you know, this is how we behave. This is what we believe in. Um, and I like to think like, as I've continued my entrepreneurial journey that I'm still learning all the time. Like you and I met because of the great game of business conference. And that's something that I didn't learn about until two or three years into Dragon Army. And I wouldn't run a business without it going forward. So I think as long as you're always willing to learn and, and adapt, um, you can evolve and continue to be a better leader. And that's, that's really the purpose of this podcast is, you know, I've, I've had my business for going on almost a quarter century next year, and I'm still learning every day. And the more people like yourself that I'm exposed to, you know, it seems like the, the easier and the faster the journey becomes. And then you start to realize it's tip of the iceberg stuff. You know, you're, you're, you're the, the more you think, you know, then all of a sudden it's like, wow. And then you're exposed to other people and it's like, wow, there's a lot more to learn and you have to be a sponge. I mean, that's, that to me is part of the leadership is, you know, you have to be willing to admit you don't know everything. Uh, you're not the person that has all the answers and be, you know, vulnerable and transparent in that way. Have, have you found that to be your experience as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, 
I have learned over time to be more vulnerable and build more trust. And, and so like with, you know, we're running the great game at dragon army, we have open financials. So everybody sees that, you know, that's nothing I did before. Like I was always too worried about what will people think if they see all the numbers. And so now I've sort of leaned into that and it's uh, it's very empowering, but absolutely. I, I think from the beginning, I didn't go to school thinking I'd run companies. Um, I was a computer science major, but to be honest, I really wanted to be a tennis player. And so I like didn't pay any attention in all my business classes. <laughs> so I have this uh, imposter syndrome constantly about being a CEO because I'm always like, I, I, I need to build this experience. So I'm always learning, learning from you, learning from others, just anywhere that I can. I, I think that's hysterical. I mean, in a good way, how we share these traits because um, on, on the first episode of this, this podcast, I had Doug Diamond, who's our, one of our coaches and he and Kevin Walter have, have helped us with our great game journey. And Doug is kind of my go-to when I panic. And so <laughs> I, I, as we keep getting bigger, you know, my, that, that whole imposter syndrome, I mean, it just creeps in and it's like, I can't run a company of 20 people or 30 <laughs> people or 50 people. You know, who am I to be, you know, helping lead these, these lives? And I'll call him in a panic and, and he'll laugh and, and he always laughs. And I, I always point that out. It's like, you, need, you really need to stop laughing at me in a vulnerable moment. But he said the, the, the most important thing was, he goes, the, the minute you stop calling me and think you have it all figured out is the minute I'll start worrying about you it's the productive paranoia is kind of a, a, a good trait for leaders to have. And I'm still wrapping my arms around it, but yeah, that's, it's, it's interesting how we all seem to kind of wind up here. Yeah, no doubt. I, again, I, I think, and, and you'll, I'm sure, you know, people who run companies that don't seem to be a sponge they, and it's not even that they're arrogant or anything. It's just that maybe they don't have that part of them. That's always trying to read a business book or a leadership book or talk to people. And I think, by and large, those companies don't grow and they don't build sort of the way that others do because they're not just naturally curious. Um, it can be easy to go, hey, things are going well and I, I feel like I'm doing a good job. But without that constant, you know, sort of need or urge to be educated, um, this is not a field like, this is not, I don't know, what's a field? Um, I was going to say, like, as an attorney, you might get to a point where you're like, okay, I'm just going to do the job. I, I've read all the books. I've studied the law, like entrepreneurship and leadership. It's a never ending process of, of education and, and growing um, always. So um, I'm glad we share that trait. Well, and, and you, you, you perfectly set me up for the next segue is, you know, I'm, I'm a, a, a huge reader. I've, I've read close to 30 books since the pandemic started, which, wow. you know, and, well, you, you've got, you know, five companies, uh, you know, the, the, you've written two books. So that's, that's the next thing I want to talk about. It doesn't seem like you sleep either. So <laughs> what, what was the catalyst for writing the books and, you know, how did you, how, how take us through that process? Like, why did you do it? Uh, why did you do it a second time? And what are your plans for the future with that? Yeah. Thanks for the question. I, I try to get at least, uh, I try to get at least eight hours of sleep. Um, so I just try to be very focused about what I'm doing and we can sort of talk about how I've gotten to that point. But, um, I'm also a big reader, but I, I won't say that I've done 30 since the pandemic started, but I did do 52, uh, read 52 books in 2018. That was my record. So I, I did a book, nice. a book a week average. Um, so I always wanted to write a book. Um, and a couple years back I had this idea, um, I didn't want to write something that, that I thought was already out there. 
Um, and I certainly don't want to write a memoir or something, it, it, certainly not at this point. Um, and so I realized that a lot of my clients, uh, these, these big brand executives, um, the ones that were successful acted more entrepreneurial and the ones that were constantly frustrated and, and, you know, having a tough time because they're in this big company and it moves so slow and they can't be agile that they just needed to change their mindset. And where they would say to me, I wish I was like you and I was just running my own business and I could pivot and do all these interesting things. I started to realize like, I don't know if that's true because I have a lot more pressure in some cases than they do. Like if my, if what I'm doing doesn't work, you know, I've lost a ton of money. I've let down everybody. If, if what they're doing doesn't work, they go get another CMO job. I mean, it's bad, but it's like you could compare the two. So I started to realize that it's not about freedom of making my own choices. It's just a mindset of an entrepreneur. And so I started studying the people I knew and people I've read about who are successful entrepreneurs and, I wrote the first book, The Five-Day Turnaround, which is essentially five leadership traits that anyone can embrace, but that will help you act more like an entrepreneur. So it was partly for the clients I work with. It was also partly for nonprofits that I've been mentoring because I also have this belief that if we could treat our nonprofits the way that we treat our tech startups, and if they could act as if they're a tech startup, meaning high growth, get to an exit, uh, you know, make that connection, uh, the world would be so much of a better place. And so part of writing this book was so that I could give it to my friends who run nonprofits and say, here's things you can do to really supercharge your ability to end homelessness in Atlanta, as an example. So it was sort of multifaceted of why I wrote the first book. Um, and then the second book actually came out during the crisis. Um, so I would say about two or three weeks into COVID um, and the quarantine, I realized that there's not, there's not any good book I could find that was very specific to how to lead during a crisis, which also happens to fall nicely into how to lead like an entrepreneur, right? You have to be willing to change and take chances. So that book I wrote, the first book I took me, you know, year, year and a half to really get done and get out. Um, but I wrote it over a month, um, got the first draft done in a month with Crisis Turnaround, which is the second book. I really wrote that in maybe 10 days. Um, I just wow. put my head down and wrote and wrote and wrote. Um, it was just in there. And uh, so we got that out pretty quick, but I, it was so funny because I was like, we've got to get this out before the pandemic's over. <laughs> and here we are <laughs> three months after I got the book out with no end in sight. <laughs> so Yeah, I think you got time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so anyways, they're in and here's like, here I have this one here. So five day turnaround. So this is how we're doing turnaround. Um, all the books in this series will be that. The next book I'm working on is The Culture Turnaround. You can actually see this is the outline for that book here. So nice. there's probably four, at least four books in that series that I'm excited to write. Well, I, I will share. I, I have read The Five-Day Turnaround. Um, Crisis Turnaround is, is pretty close on the, on the list to coming up. But The Five-Day Turnaround is a page turner. I, I was hooked like right away in the story. So your writing style is, at least for the way I like to read a story, extremely engaging. And it was like, okay, what's going to happen next? What's going to, you know, you're on the journey with these people uh, as they're, you know, you've got a big organization. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't want to give the whole story away, but you've got a big organization, another company with an opportunity to help them. And they're like, you're exactly what we need, but we can't do what you're telling us. And it's like, okay, well, how are they going to get through this problem? And 
up until reading Five Day Turnaround, my favorite book for heightened anxiety as a reader, and I mean that in a good way, like <laughs> I like to be engaged in the story. Uh, there's a book called The Phoenix Project by Gene Kim, and it's a, it's a DevOps story. So, you know, as an IT guy, like I lived in that story. I read it several times, and each time I felt the sickness in the pit of my stomach when something was going wrong. You've written this book in, in a very similar fashion to where I just couldn't keep flipping fast enough through the pages and like, okay, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? So for all the people listening or watching out there, like get a copy of five day turnaround immediately and then see where that takes you on the journey. And now that I know you're going to have like three or four books in the series, it's like, okay, I'm, we need to wrap this up so you can get back to writing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I so appreciate you saying that. Um, and I love the Phoenix project. Have you read the goal? I have. Yeah, I the have. goal's another I, I, good one. Yeah. It's good on audio too, because he actually, he's passed away now, but um, hearing him reading it, that was another one of those engaging stories where, you know, and then they, on the audio part, they actually had different actor and actresses reading for it. Uh -huh. And it was like, you were actually in the story, they had factory sounds and it was like the, the whole theory of constraints was you know, yeah. you were drawn into something that like if somebody's given a lecture on it, you'd probably be snoozed out in five minutes. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I love those books. I also love Patrick Lencioni's books. Um, yes. I tell everyone like um, the five dysfunctions of a team is like, you got to read it if you're building a company. It's funny. I actually, my leadership team, I had them read the Phoenix Project um, last year. So we're reading those. But yeah, you know, it's interesting when I started to write the five day turnaround before it was called that. Um, I was writing it as a normal business book and I was bored with it. <laughs> I was like, this is boring to write. And also if I, you know, because of, because what I'm sort of putting out there with five day turnaround, which is you can act like an entrepreneur inside of a company. Um, there wasn't a lot of like case studies to draw from and interviews to do because that's not really talked a lot about. There's tons of books for entrepreneurs and there's tons of books on innovation for leaders but not a lot that say, here's how you can act like an entrepreneur inside your big company. So anyways, and then I was like, let me just take a stab. Um, and so I wrote like, I don't know, 20 pages in the, in the sort of narrative style and got a couple of people to read it. And they were like, Hey, this is, this is decent. So I just kept going with it. And you'll be interested to know all the books are going to have the characters sort of within. Oh, cool. So yeah. Um, yeah. And actually, Harry you know, series. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Charles was the mentor in five day turnaround. Eventually, mm -hmm. I'm going to write a book and it's going to be him becoming the leader that he became. Um, so I'm going to like go 30 years in the past and write. So anyways, you're going, be, you're going all star Wars on us. I, I know that's right. <laughs> My wife was like, why are you doing this? This is not a good idea to go back in time. I'm like, well, star Wars did it. <laughs> yeah. And, and they turned out okay. I mean, they, yeah. they, they made a few bucks doing it. <laughs> Well, this, this explains a lot to me then about your writing style, because it sounds like we read very similar, uh, we're, our, our, we have similar favorite authors and Lencioni, I mean, that makes sense then because yeah. I mean, all his books are in that style. So, uh, but I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, I'd put this up against his work any day in terms of engagement. And I, I, he's another one that I'll listen to his books when I'm doing my walking and it's it, his stories keep you like, sometimes I'll wander off a path and I'm like, Oh, wait, I'm, I'm about two more miles from my house than I thought I was. I, I could imagine if, if I had an audible version of this, it would probably have the same impact on me. Well, what's, um, I'm 
actually recording the crisis turnaround as audio for my first attempt at that. Um, but I'll tell you um, two things. When I wrote the five-day turnaround, I had the high-level outline, but every what I did was I wrote it over a month. Every morning I said, I'm going to write for at least 15 minutes and then see if, it's, if I'm sort of not feeling it, I just stop. And if not, I'll just keep going. And some mornings I wrote for three or four hours. But I would literally sit down and start a chapter or wherever I was in the book and not know where it was going to go. Cause I had to write what happened and then I go, well, how would she react to that? And what would happen next? And, and so that was interesting for me. Cause I, I didn't see that. I had read fiction writers who talked about that. And then the other thing that um, my, my goal is with the third book, the culture turnaround is I want to write it. So my wife, who's, you know, not in the business at all, not into leadership and things um, that she could read it and it would be compelling enough for her, like a, like a, uh, a page turner the way you described, but I, I have to think part of why you enjoyed that was because it was business related and how, to, how do you solve this issue? I would like to write it in the vein that it's like a compelling story regardless and there's drama and sort of intrigue and you're sort of learning without maybe even knowing it. So my goal is like fiction and business book coming together. That's, that's what I'm striving for with book three. Like, I think the reason that it's, it's that page turner mentality is because it's so relatable. You know, that you, you touched on, on things that most people who are in business or in leadership can relate to. And that's, that's what makes it interesting. So as you're, as you're going through this third book, not that you need any advice from me, but I mean, that's bringing people who can relate to those, whatever you're trying to capture. That's, that seems to me the, your, your, your golden ticket right now. You've got, you've got the flair for it. Um, that's, that's, what's got me hooked. So, you know, keep, just keep doing it. I appreciate that, Eric. <laughs> Sure. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the, your nonprofit endeavors, your, your uh, what I like to call giving forward, because that imp uh, giving back implies you're kind of taking and, and then you have to give it back. But, you know, you've, you've learned so much and you've got an organization, 48 and 48. Um, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So in 2015, um, I sort of I had, I had tried um, to bring together marketers and digital marketers um, to help some nonprofits. And I was trying it in various different ways and it, it just wasn't working. And I wanted to continue to lean into giving um, you know, people an opportunity to, to use their superpowers to do good. I was sort of stuck on that idea. And having had you know, hundreds of employees that were programmers and creatives, they just rarely get an opportunity to use those skills to do good in the world. So I, I had this idea. I'm like, well, what if I could put on a hackathon? What if I could bring together, I don't know. At first I was like, what if 10 people could build a nonprofit website in a 48 hour period? What if they could do it, you know, over a weekend? And once I sort of convinced myself, well, that should be possible. We're talking about a small nonprofit website. Well, then maybe 20 people could do two websites. And I just kept doing that until it felt a little ridiculous, which got to 48 in 48 hours. <laughs> and then I called one of my best friends who, who you know, did a ton of WordPress work with his company. And I was like, if, if I can convince him that it's possible, because he does these sort of small quick sites for a living, then maybe we have something. So he was on board. And then in October of 2015, we put on our first event in Atlanta and about 150 people came and we built 48 nonprofit websites in 48 hours. And it was remarkable and exhausting and exhilarating. And at, toward the end of it, 
people were coming up to Adam and I, my partner and saying, Hey, can we go ahead and sign up for next year? And we were like, Oh, maybe we ought to think about doing this next year. I guess people enjoyed it. So, you know, quick, quick, five years later where we've done over 20 events. Um, this Atlanta event coming up, um, in a couple of weeks is going to have, um, hopefully close to a thousand volunteers. Um, wow. We'll, hopefully soon we'll eclipse a thousand nonprofit websites built and it's, it's all volunteers. So that has been really rewarding to be able to, um, see the impact it makes yes on the nonprofits, but more the people who are participating. They keep coming back year after year and it always amazes me, but it's because I, I know that feeling of using your gifts to, to do good in the world. So, um, yeah, that's been a, that's been a really fun, uh, startup if you will, to be a part of. <laughs> And that's, that's, again, connecting people to a cause. And for the listeners out there who aren't familiar with the term hackathon, it's, it's a good thing. They're not mm -hmm. hacking into yeah. banks or, or stealing information. It's, it's when you bring a bunch of coders together for a purpose like he's, he's talking about. And the results, I mean, I think I read the, the net so far of gifted hours is somewhere in the neighborhood or, or the value of the time donated and the, the services and the end results was somewhere around like 75 million. Is that, is that accurate or did I read that wrong? No, that sounds accurate. Yeah. If you think about it, if we've done over 800 websites, um, you know, wow. that those aren't, those aren't inexpensive. So yeah, we're, we're, um, we're trying our best to, to quantify it. And, and also now we're working on the analytics side of it to understand how much, you know, the actual nonprofits have been able to increase the amount that they're raising or the amount of volunteers they get. And so it's a continual process, but yeah, that's, that's a number that, uh, that we've been using. Well, that, that's, that when you, when you take that impact and then magnify it out, I mean, it has a ripple effect and I'm segueing into your other, one of the other organization ripples of hope, yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about Ripples of Hope. Yeah, so this this goes back to, I was mentioning earlier about the idea of, um, you know, nonprofits and nonprofit leadership. And I had the opportunity to be in the Atlanta Tech Village here in Atlanta um, at the beginning of starting Dragon Army. And it's this amazing five-floor building of all tech startups. And I saw that the energy that they got by being together, you know, I don't know, it was hundreds of, non, uh, hundreds of startups. Um, I saw the um, way that investors were seeking them out and the press was seeking them out and they had cohort groups and so forth. And then I looked at the nonprofit world and they don't have any of that. Right. And if, if we're, if we, if we have two companies, two small startups and one is a tech startup that has found a new way to get uh, you and I to click an ad on the internet. And then we have one that's trying to end homelessness in Atlanta, which one would we want to have a big exit? Right. I'd really rather the nonprofit Yet really, it's the the other one that usually does. So, ripples of hope, which is a phrase that Bobby Kennedy used in a speech that he gave in South Africa. Um, he's he's one of my heroes. Um, it's this idea of starting to infuse nonprofit leaders with a growth mindset. Um, think more like entrepreneurs because they are. Um, connect them to money, to relationships, to networks. Bring them together with mentors. So. It's really sort of trying to take the co-working tech startup world and implant it into the nonprofit world. So I started that last year. We have six companies going through the process. We meet on a monthly basis. Um, and yeah, my hope is that it becomes, you know, much, much bigger, but you got to start small just the way 48 did. So we're just getting our feet under us on that one. What What is typically like a catalyst for you when you realize it's time to start something new? 
So, you know, you've had, you've had five organizations and, you know, you talk about this last one last year started, like at what point is it just the, the circumstances coming together? Like, okay, I, th I think it's time we need an LLC or we need something here to make this more structural. Like what, what's that, what's that process look like in your head or how does that yeah. come together? It, it all starts with my purpose, which is to have an outsized positive impact on the world. Um, so it has to be outsized and has to make a big positive impact. Um, and then it has to be um, part of what I think I can personally do, right? So um, I, I look through that lens and if I see that there's a real need and a gap, um, like knowing no one was doing anything like 48 and 48, you know, six years ago. Um, and with ripples, I saw, I saw the gap. Um, but you're hitting on sort of an interesting thing for an entrepreneur, which is saying no to things and not jumping on, you know, every new idea. So I have tons of ideas that sort of, I wish I could do, but they don't have the time or I, or they don't have the, um, they won't have the impact or I won't be able to put the time into them. Um, so I started a, the, the last thing that I started um, recently, which isn't a company yet. Um, it's a, uh, sort of a, a rallying cry, a pledge for marketers of starting it in, in the Atlanta area to um, lean into um, equity and diversity with our teams. Like Atlanta's 62% people of color, 38% white, and yet our agencies, including mine, are mostly 90% white. So why is that and how do we work on fixing that? And so I've got you know, 10 people that I've brought to, together and said, let's see if we can do something that really makes an impact here over the years. Um, that's an example of something that may just be an idea that we share and, and it becomes, you know, maybe a website or something, or maybe two or three years from now, it's a new company. I, I don't know yet, but I know that it's something that needs to happen. And because of my connections and, and experience in this industry, maybe it's something that I can help move forward. So it always has to go back to my purpose um, and, and, you know, sort of where my passion lies. And I think that's, that's a, another key leadership trait that, as I, as I get farther into this, this podcast and have more guests on, you, you start to see common themes appear and, you know, the servant leadership mentality, you, know, you talk about leading with your purpose and, and your heart and you have then vision comes through that and you're connecting people to purpose. Not once during this, this conversation we're having, has it been money driven first? You know, the money becomes the, the, you know, the voting that your clients do as a result of what you do. And I think that's been kind of an important thing that, you know, the, 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 the leaders that I've had on have shared that is, you, you know, yeah, you, you definitely want to value your services and what you do, but then if it's, if money is the leader, if, if you start with that, right. you, you wind up disconnecting everything else and you'd never get to where you're at today with having these opportunities to start these movements and these nonprofit organizations to, to advance the cause of your community. Yeah, no, I love that you you pointed that out. Um, you know, even with Dragon Army, which is a for-profit company, when we talk about revenue and growth and profitability, we talk about it in terms of how it can help us live into and uh, move toward our purpose. So, so we have a, a clear tenant um, to strive for operational excellence, but we always talk about that so that we can do more good. You know, if, if, if our house is on fire, we're not going to be able to lean into our community and help. We're going to constantly be, so we've got to build a predictable, profitable business 
so that we can do the things that we want to do, right? So that we can have the perks that employees should have so that we can take it. We take an annual company cruise, or at least we did until COVID. Um, and like we can't do those things, which inspire happiness in the team <laughs> if we're floundering. And so there's a business component, but you're right. It's in order to do something more important than, than just make money. Well, what's, what's that been like now? I mean, we're all dealing with the COVID situation and uh, you know, in, in, in our situation being it, the only component that was really impacted by having to shift remote was our field services because you have to be on client sites, you know, to work on hardware and to work on networks. But if they're not there, you know, obviously you don't need to be there unless something's going wrong. Um, so we've been, you know, really leveraging technology to do our jobs, but culture is a whole other aspect. And so what have you guys been doing uh, to maintain you know, the culture and make sure your, your people are okay. Cause this, this can have a lot of different effects on people from a mental aspect, physical aspect, you blur the lines between work and home life. Uh, what are some of the challenges and how have you, how have you guys been handling that? Yeah, no, I, I you know, I think um, it's been difficult, mostly from the culture perspective, the work, getting the work done to your point, we're lucky that, you know, we can do the work remote, that's not an issue. Our clients really aren't in their offices, so there's not a need to have in-person meetings. That's been okay. It's been uh, difficult to, re to continue to connect with everybody, um, to share with everybody. Um, the thing that I've had to learn as a leader is that if, if I'm with people all day and I'm, I'm seeing them, I can, or we all can sense when something's off, you know, they're having a tough time. But when you just see someone a couple times a day for half hour on a video, you don't always see that. And so taking the time and, and making sure you're checking in with somebody um, and even not on video, I also think that's a thing. Like it, it's not necessarily better to do video all the time, but just talking to somebody um, and, and checking in how they're doing, something that you didn't, didn't have to do quite as much before because again, you could tell. That's something that we've learned. We're also looking at, you know, can we do in-person, you know, out at a park or something. Um, but right now, it, as we continue to pull our team, they're, they're just not ready for that. A lot of them are like, you know what, I, you know, because I've got kids or whatever, I feel like I need to remain, you know, quarantined. So we're going to listen to the team for sure. Um, take it slow, but I think we're going to pay more attention to emotions. And that may be something that we take forward. You know, I like to think that in any times of challenge, your, you know, your best leaders are learning and growing from that. So I hope that that teaches us to continue to be more heart-led and, and really, you know, pay attention to how our team is feeling. Again, I think we did a good job with that before. I bet we'll do it better going forward. And I, th I think, you know, like you said, as leaders, it, it, one, of our, one of our primary objectives is to provide a safe environment. Um, and that's, that listening is a, is a key component to that. Like there's companies that are just forcing people back into the office and, you know, that's, that's a sure way to, to, to breach trust, you know, especially if, if they have, you know, elderly people living with them or, or people in a higher risk situation, you're, you're basically forcing them to choose, you know, between bring, potentially bringing that to somebody who could perish from it uh, over their paycheck. That's a, that's a tough spot to put somebody in. Also, I think the longer this goes, the more you know, regardless how strong people are, how strong your community is and how strong your culture is, it's going to have a mental health impact. Yeah. And I've been pretty transparent about my mental health journey, which, you know, maybe on another episode, you could come back and, and we could talk about, you know, that in a little bit more detail. 
I started seeing a therapist over a year ago. It's had a tremendous uh, positive impact on me. It was at the urging of one of my coaches. And, you know, through that openness, other people in the organization have sought out the professional services just to have somebody to talk to. Mm-hmm. And I consider things like what we're doing here right now, therapy for myself, and, you know, maybe you, you feel that same way. Um, you think we're going to have to get better at providing those types of services for our team moving forward? You know, one of the things that, that we have talked about for years at Dragon Army is, is when we, you know, we, we think about like, as we get to different um, sizes as a team, we will be able to invest in more things. And one of the things that I've, I've been sort of talking to the team about again for a while now is why wouldn't a company um, provide counseling, provide that type of service? Um, you, you know, I don't know what the percentages are, but there's a lot of people in this world, but certainly in this country that are experiencing some sort of depression. And most of them probably are never going to either know to or feel comfortable seeking help for it. But if that's a part of your company and there's somebody who's maybe on staff that's observing and there for people and able to give those kinds of uh, outlets and conversations, um, wouldn't that be amazing? And, you know, if you're a company asks so much of a person and yes, they pay them a paycheck, but they're asking a lot and a lot of time it should be a place where they are better for it. I like to say that, you know, if, if my, if one of my team members won the lottery tomorrow and became independently wealthy, I would want them to, to still want to come to work because it's fulfilling them in so many other ways than just drawing a paycheck. And that's a, I mean, that's a, I don't think, I don't know, I don't know if anyone would do that today, but that's a goal that I strive for so that I'm always thinking, how can I make this an irreplaceable part of their life and such a positive thing in their life that the paycheck, of course, is important, but it's not the thing that drives them back to the office every day. Yeah, the, the connection to purpose is, it's, it's the, the, to me, it's the biggest thing. When you look at you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and once you've got those basic needs covered, you know, your food, water, shelter, it, you, you climb up that, that ladder, and, and it's all about being connected to something bigger than yourself. And that's another job I think we have as leaders is providing an environment where the people who believe what you believe and want to contribute to that, you, you just won't be able to, no amount of money is going to be able to replace what that does and how they feel by, by coming there. And that, that is the number one thing we have to protect in our organizations. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. So, you know, I think um, we have been talking about whether we can uh, offer um, counseling services to our team members today. I think we're probably going to find a way to do that, um, even if it's just a one-off, whoever wants to. But I think it's critically important. And I'm glad that you've been, um, you know, been finding success from that. Yeah, it's, it's, it was uh, a, a quite a journey because, you know, I was pretty, I'm a pretty stubborn guy. And, you know, uh, Doug Diamond, who's, who's one of my, you know, closest friends, and he's, he's also coach and mentor, he stuck with it. And, you know, just gentle nudging and encouragement, rather than, you know, hey, man, you're, you're just a mess, you got to go get some help. It was just kind of like, you know, that's, that's something a professional might be you know, you'd want to seek out and have a conversation about that. And it turns out, you know, a lot of my issues were deep seated back to my childhood that just were never resolved. And going through that process, you know, helped me connect a lot of dots into why I reacted to certain situations. And, you know, I'm a, uh, I carry this with me now. Um, you know, I'm sure you know who Ari Weinswig is from Zingerman's. 
And, you know, one of his uh, famous sayings that, you know, when, when I was at one of his workshops, he's like, he used to be kind of a reactionary person as well. And he said he, he learned that when, when I get furious, I get curious. And then you start flipping the script and, and trying to see it from the other person's perspective of either why they're behaving that way or why they think that way. And you just never know what somebody else is going through. So your reaction to their situation could take you down a completely wrong path just because there's no communication or understanding of what either side is currently going through outside of the immediate situation you're in. And it just started opening up a whole bunch of dialogue and a whole bunch of doors and, and, you know, it's, it's a complete 180 now. And, and this is the benefit of having other people in your life who are concerned with you as a person and wanting the best for you and then seeking out people who can help you connect those dots. Yeah. I find it hard to believe anyone who's had any, any amount of success hasn't had people um, that have been mentors or coaches, whether, you know, sort of officially or unofficially, um, I've certainly been the benefit of that. Um, but again, like going back to your example, the therapy is one thing, but the push to get it was from somebody that cared about you. And I think that's, that's important. Yeah. You have to have those types of people in your life. And again, it's surrounding self with surrounding yourself with people who will be cheerleaders, whether the times are good or bad, uh, yep. cause it's easy to root for somebody when you're winning. Right. I mean, that's, that's the, the easiest thing to possibly do is captain a ship when everything's going right and uh, root for, Oh, you're having all kinds of good for you, but man, tell people, you know, like I had Kevin Walter on and he's talking about tasty catering being down 80% this year. And he's all smiles when he's telling me that story. It's like, okay, it's, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to be cheerleading somebody when they're down 80%, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But geez, catering. Yeah. That's tough. My yeah. dad has a vending company and it's like, oh, they've been crushed during this. That's good that, yeah, the positive attitude, that's good. Yeah. Well, and planning and structure. I mean, there's all kinds of things that went into it, but again, that's why we have our, our groups, our peer groups, uh, open book community, all that stuff. Every piece of that puzzle helps us become better leaders. And, you know, with that, Jeff, we're, we're, I told you the 30 minutes would go by pretty quickly. Um, I would love to have you back again, because I'm sure there's, there's at least a couple more shows we could do on this stuff, especially when your new book comes out. Um, But again, the five day turnaround, the crisis turnaround, those are your, your current books. Um, If people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way they can reach out uh, if they want to continue a dialogue? Yeah, um, probably just my website, which is jeffhillemeyer.com, H-I-L-I-M-I-R-E.com. From there, there you can connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter, um, or the very best way is to um, sign up for my email newsletter. I send about once a week. It's sort of like a half blog, half, here's the podcast I've done recently. I'll promote this podcast on it. So that's the, that's the very best way. But yeah, if you go to the site, there's various ways to connect. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. It was a pleasure talking to you. I can't wait for this to air so everybody can benefit from the, the wisdom that you shared with us. Uh, continued success, uh, both you know, in the profit and nonprofit world. And uh, certainly please come back again. We'd, we'd love to have you continue this conversation in the future. I can't thank you enough, Eric. This was a blast. All right. Thank you, everybody. This has been another episode of Tempered Leadership. Uh, Please take care of yourself and those in your charge, and we'll see you next week with another guest to help you on your journey. Oh, thank you.